This is show notes for socialism part two. Bah, bah. One, two. Buckle my fucking shoe. You're like Sharpay from High School Musical. Who? Sharpay. Who's that? The blonde. Oh, you know what? I didn't see High School Musical. That's upsetting. I I think we've talked about it before. I think your kids, they were definitely too young when it came out or not born. Not sure which, which is the case. But they maybe it just didn't pick up. But it's like a trend now, especially High School Musical 2. So they've probably seen it. I guess maybe just you didn't see it. They've probably seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're in show notes. The third one was in movie theaters. We're talking about how I am Sharpay. Well, she goes before she does things. Oh. Yeah. Um, before we get into everything, everybody. I just wanted to thank everybody for coming through. We put out a a request to help us surge past 3,000 subscribers on YouTube, and you did it. Did you see that they changed the parameters for (laughs) for creators? Yes, (laughs) but it's not not all that it's cracked up to be. I know, but it's saying you only had to have 500 subscribers, not 1,000. Yes. Which made me laugh because it was like, of of course. Yeah. Half of everything. But you actually don't get the full monetization. Okay. You get to get like tokens and stuff like that, but you don't get to actually get into tokens. The, the, Is this Chuck E. Cheese? The uh, the little tip me tokens and stuff like mm. that. You can you can basically it earns you the right to to work really hard to earn money. Okay. Through YouTube gotcha. as opposed to just getting money from YouTube. That seems fair. Yeah. No. It's uh, I think it's a positive development. It's going to help smaller creators get there. But we're not small creators, right? really small creators. We're big. But we're making it happen. Big, big old, <clears throat> big old creators. But the one thing that we're falling behind on, sadly, is memberships. We have as many people pulling out of memberships as we have coming into memberships because people's financial situations change, which we totally, totally understand. For all of those who send in their regret messages that they had to change their um, their status as members, as paid members, We love you for all of the support that you gave us through the years. Thank you so much for doing it. We need some people to take your place, and that's fine. And uh, so we're putting out the call once again for some more members. All the information that you need to support the show can be found at UNFTR.com. Can you show people that dictionary on camera? Which one? the biggest dictionary I've ever seen in my entire life. Yep. (laughs) It's not going to work for the pod listeners. Yeah, but just imagine a big dictionary, a big dictionary. Wow. Look at that. Dictionary. Let's see the from the yes. other. Like, let's see the pages. Yes. Oh, it's got the thingy holes. Yeah, bowling ball. Yeah. That is they're truly the biggest dictionary I've ever fucking seen. What else do we have here? Nothing important. Oh well, we've got freedom of speech in the United States as well. And I was using these to prop things up as I was redoing the studio layout. And I see that copy floor. of Mein Kampf down there. Oh, whoa. Totally uncalled for. You said it wasn't important. Totally uncalled That's your Bible. For. Wow. Wow. Am I going to get you demonetized? Oh, my goodness. I'm just kidding, <laughs> Mr. YouTube. Goodness gracious. All right, let's get into headlines so we can plow through this because we have a lot of responses we need to get to. Uh, the first one is related to something that we're going to drop this weekend, if all goes according to plan. And uh, that is a sort of a recast of our Julian Assange episode with some new information and updates about the imminent extradition that he's facing, uh, plus the sudden uh, fashionable use of the Espionage Act, which all kind of plays into it. So we're going to talk about that. But the headline that we're sharing is from Reporters Without Borders, who's very concerned, as are most credible news organizations, about the extradition attempt to bring Assange back to the United States. Time is running out for Assange. And it's hard to imagine his situation getting any worse. He's held in isolation right now in the UK, and a judge just struck down his final appeal to uh, counter the extradition to the United States. One of the reasons that it is madness that he would even be extradited to the United States is because he's not a US citizen. He's just has nothing to do with the United States. So the fact that they're trying to bring him to this court just shows the heft that we have on the global stage uh, because he has no business being here. 
So that's really troubling. Uh, so the, the article that we shared is from Reporters Without Borders. I'm just going to give you a, a little clip of it. It says, in a three-page written decision issued on June 6th, a single judge... Justice Swift. <laughs> Swift justice. My goodness. <clears throat> Rejected all eight grounds of Assange's appeal against the extradition order signed by then UK Home Secretary Preeti Patel in June of 2022. This leaves only one final step in the UK courts as the defense has five working days to submit an appeal of only 20 pages to a panel of two judges who will convene a public hearing. Further appeals will not be possible at the domestic level, but Assange could bring a case to the European Court of Human Rights. So it is not clear whether or not bringing a case to the European Court of Human Rights can actually prevent the extradition. I'm not sure if one has anything to do with the other. I'm not sure what broad authority the Human Rights Court would have over the nation-to-nation -nation extradition order that came from the U.S. to um, to the U.K. So it looks like he's probably bound for the United States, and then we have quite the fight ahead of us. Listen to the episode this weekend. Go back, or if you don't want to, just go back and re-listen to the other Assange episode to contextualize fully what kind of what he means to journalism and the state of journalism in the world, not just in our own country. So, and we'll go through the history more in the pod, but this is something that Trump decided to do was to, you know, bring him back to the United States. And Biden has not stopped that effort at all. Uh, in fact, uh, maybe even going harder after Assange, which is uh, really troubling. So... Not sure what else to make of that. We will uh, we'll dive deeper into that this weekend. But it's something that everybody needs to be paying attention to. I assume there will be some mass actions in the United States in the event that he ever touches ground here. If he does come to the United States, it will probably be in one of the very dire communication management units that we have here, the Guantanamo-style prisons that we have. And there's a very, very good chance that he will never see the light of day again until he is dead. So um, this is very troubling on a number of levels, not just for his own personal story, but for the future of journalism, because this will absolutely have a chilling effect on uh, some great journalism. Uh, while everybody's talking about the missing submarine, which is tragic in its own right, and uh, also the height of absurdity, I, I understand that there might be some Tesla technology that's in that submarine. It looks to be, I think, run by like a gaming station device. That's like the only, they have no redundant features within the submarine that would help them like overcome if there's a steering fault. Like the whole thing is sort of, would be bizarrely com comical if there weren't five people trapped at the bottom of the ocean, probably not to be found. My guess is even by the time this comes out, they will have run out of oxygen. And if the attempts were not successful to locate it, they're even gonna have trouble bringing it up. So these these five people are probably going to perish. But with all of that kind of going on and, and looking at, at the sea, there was a great article in Mother Jones that I wanted to point everybody's attention to titled Abuse at Sea. Mariner. Oh, well, that's actually our title for it. Uh, it's uh, it's about mariners at sea during the Me Too movement. And this article was produced in partnership with the nonprofit newsroom Type Investigations with support from the H.D. Lloyd Fund for Investigative Journalism. So let me just read a, a brief excerpt here. Life offshore sounds like a concept for a reality TV show. Put a group of strangers together in an isolated environment, deprive them of sleep, their families and friends, days off, and a means of escape, and then see who survives. But this is the way of life for two million seafarers across the world who staff oil rigs, container ships, and the car carriers that help keep the global economy moving. Offshore work is one of the most dangerous jobs in America. The fatality rate for maritime transportation workers is six times higher than that of the average U.S. worker. So there are roughly 24,000 women who work in this industry worldwide and choose to live in an environment that they say, quote, often doesn't want them to be there. Now that 24,000 represents only 2% of everybody that works in global, in global shipping. Of the 24,000, what this piece uncovers is the staggering rate of sexual abuse and sexual assault that women face while at sea. And it's something that they know happens in the military. And now they're looking at, you know, what's happening in private industry, obviously, and seeing, you know, that these things carry through. It requires a complete change in culture. It requires a complete change in the way that these things are reported. And it's just one of these, one of those great stories that brings you into a world that you kind of never think about 
and then brings you into the lives of people that you really don't think about being in that world. And uh, just as some excellent reporting. I also love that this is a collaborative effort that's backed by a foundation because you find oftentimes individual newsrooms don't have the, the heft anymore to be able to produce a series like this or, or a big piece like this. It's why we still quote the ICIJ in investigative outlets like that. So just wanted to call out, type investigations, type out, um, wait, where did this originally come in? So call out Mother Jones, call out type investigations, and obviously thank the H.D. Lloyd Fund for uh, backing this type of journalism. Check that story out when you get a chance. And the last headline that we have for you today is from The Intercept, and it is, uh, it's about the FBI. And the little title we have here is, uh, Dear FBI, this is why no one likes you. So hating the FBI and other authorities of the state used to be the purview of leftists. And I was just talking to, we had a conversation with Manny's friends over at Newsbeat recently. We were talking about how disorienting it is now to try and figure out who stands where on what, because everything is, seems to be upside down. So you have leftists that are in support of Trump being indicted. You've got people on the right that aren't in support of that. You've got- That one makes sense. That one makes sense. And then you've got the antipathy toward the FBI on the right when it comes to sort of any investigations. And then the leftists, you know, supporting these investigations like into Trump and into into other areas. So everything is is completely upside down into, into who stands for what. But they're on, on issues of civil liberties and an issue of authoritarian state actors and agencies. There's this kind of weird tepid alliance between the far left, what people would term the far left and the far right in this country. But this article I found really interesting, first of all, because I love Murtaza Hussein. I think he's just a tremendous, tremendous reporter. And he talks about the FBI going after and essentially radicalizing a young person who has developmental disabilities from birth. This young person at 16 years old was contacted by the FBI because he had trouble at school. He was uh, he wound up leaving school. He was bullied at school. He had a lot of trouble. Uh, he has some cognitive issues uh, and wound up becoming what what I can only describe, I guess, is like the in, the incel archetype. So he's just somebody that really withdrew from society and wound up spending a lot of time online, found an FBI agent who attempted to radicalize him into ISIS. So it's a one-to-one -one relationship. The only person that this child had ever spoken to about radical Islam was this FBI agent. He never attempted to disseminate any information. He was being, quote, groomed by this FBI agent. And the FBI agent conned him into sending him gift cards in $25 denominations to help support his research efforts into radical Islam. And they used that as the basis to charge and indict this child, basically, once he turned 18, as being a, quote, terrorist. Absolutely incredible story. He'd never spoken to anybody other than the FBI agent that was grooming him to radicalize him. And in fact, they even in their own reporting show that the kid had attempted to find other people at the FBI, not knowing he was talking to an FBI agent, to turn in the FBI agent that he thought was trying to radicalize him. So he had this sort of like breakthrough of conscience and realized this is all very dangerous and wanted to turn him in. And it, it was at that moment that they actually wound up going after this kid and charging him with being a domestic terrorist. Isn't that just entrapment? That is the definition of entrapment. And they basically copped to the whole thing in and their own. Is he, is he out? Is he free? No, he's under charges right now. So this is, this is happening as we speak. So again, I, I like these stories just because they're it, it sort of like reminds us of the insidious parts of things that we don't really talk about on a daily basis. Everybody's like, oh, everybody's talking about the FBI and it's the right hates them and the left hates them and everybody hates everybody. And that they're still doing terrible things. And look how they're look what they're doing in this one example to this kid. Everybody's talking about what's going on at sea. Everybody's talking about supply chain. Everybody's Are talking about this. Sing, give peace a chance. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> that's but that's everybody talking about. I'm not gonna say all of the words, but it sounded like you were going into that. Well, give give peace a chance. I I think it's part of the the reason why you can get leftist people. Like sometimes I'll I'll search for an article on something, and 
there's a website I don't recognize and I pull it up and I'm like, let me check what this is first. Mm-hmm. Like I was reading about some something about Israel and some like anti-Semitic speaker somewhere. And I was like, and the article was like, I read it not thinking anything. And then I was like, no, nah, I got to check. And it was like a very like far, like, I guess, I don't know, far right-ish Israel. I don't know how to term it, but I was like, oh. And I, you know, it was, I think it was actually for what they claim to stand for pretty unbiased. Mm-hmm. Cause like, I mean, it was more just like r- reporting the facts, but like I could have easily disseminated that and been like, here's this article from this, you know, organization. So it's where people, it's like, we know not to trust the government, but also the far right doesn't trust the government. And then that's how people, you know, people who are maybe just a little, not disenfranchised, but or who are a little disillusioned rather with the, with anything get swept over to the right really easily. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is hard to know who to trust. I mean, the answer is no one, but also sometimes the government. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> There's no straight answer. Sometimes the cigar is just a cigar, right? Sometimes they just do terrible things with, you know, authority and state actors. It's, yeah. I just, I just, uh, I like that these two articles, the last two articles in particular, just take, things that we really don't think about or think about in, you know, completely different sides of it. And, uh, you know, just show examples of how there's always more to the story and critical thinking is required. So with that, and we'll share those obviously in the newsletter. If you're not signed up for the newsletter, again, go to unftr.com, leave us your information slash there. Subscribe. Slash subscribe. Or no, subscribe. I'm sorry, I lied. Slash blog. Right. And then if you want to do like hashtag subscribe at the end, it will take you right to the subscribe link. But if you just go to the blog, you'll find it. Okay. But like you we have to stop sending people blog. Yeah, to the homepage because that won't help them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so make sure you sign up to the newsletter if you haven't done that already. Appreciate that. And uh, with that, let's get into emails and kick it off with Dan H. Yeah. So this is all reactions. The next couple are reactions to the last episode. So Dan H. said, I had a thought as he went through the history of enlightenment thought in Europe and the shift from feudal faith-based systems to reason-based participatory government systems. Did any of this kind of shift happen elsewhere in the world? Have you done any reading about philosophical and government shifts in East Asia, the Middle East, Africa, or South America pre-enlightenment? I haven't, and I don't know of anything, but I'm learning to ask about stories outside of our Euro or Western white world to see if similar themes exist. Oftentimes they do. So Dan H, this is a great email. We alluded to the fact that there are going to be tributary stories that we cover at the end of the at, at the end of the socialism series that will focus most specifically on what was happening in Eastern Western Europe and then bleeding across to the United States uh, and throughout North America for that matter. There are, of course, other movements throughout world history. The socialism that we're speaking of, the reason that it's isolated into the parts of the world that we're talking about is because those were the parts of the world that were most demonstrably affected by the Enlightenment and then coming into the modern period. What was happening in Asia was a corollary, sometimes influenced by it, and it's not something that I'm nearly as schooled at. However, we are going to talk about Maoism. We are definitely going to get into the state-run socialist theory under Mao and centralized planning aspect of building a a communist society, but with centralized planning where the means of production are owned by the state and not the people. Uh, So that's gonna be an important piece of the puzzle for us. And as we go, I'm, I'm very keen on looking at stories that are coming from the listeners and that are coming from the audience of different tributaries we can follow. So we have another one that we're gonna talk about in a little bit that came from a listener. In the last episode, we have, uh, oh, the listener's name was on the tip of my tongue, but uh, I was talking about black Marxism. So we have that book on order and we're gonna be digging into that a little bit. That's why I suspect that a lot of what we cover is gonna take us through the year, the socialism series, just talking about the European and uh, North American uh, journey will, be this the the hardcore series that we'll look at and then i think we can take one-offs and look at different journeys as we go so thank you for writing in and um you know look forward to more suggestions clayton b said uh oh this is a this is related to that it's a little bit of a long one we've got it's actually a very long email we we highlighted certain clips and i'll get to it ready 
Clayton said, I'm a regular listener to UNFTR and appreciate the always insightful analysis and critique of major issues contained each every in each of the weekly essays. I have a special interest in your latest series on socialism, but am dismayed to find that after discussing early theorists like Charles Fourier, Henry, Henri de Saint-Simon, and Robert Owen, you'll be moving directly onto Karl Marx and his socialist theories without mentioning the main historical socialist alternative to his views that predates the rise of Marxism, which is Christian socialism. Uh, so here we go. There's another tributary for you, Dan H., and we'll add that to the list. Just going to read a couple of things that are very interesting because Clayton is extremely schooled on the matter, and this demonstrates once again that our audience is the smartest. There was a time from the mid-19th century through the early decades of the 20th when white evangelical Christians were often at the forefront of progressive and socialist movements. I think in particular of Walter Rauschenbusch, Rausbenbusch in the U.S. I don't know that person. And J.S. Woodsworth in Canada. Don't know that person either. Other early European figures are named below. Today, the progressive Christian and socialist vision in the U.S. is being carried forward primarily by black evangelical leaders, James Cohn, Cornel West, Raphael Warnock, William Barber II. The social transition is remarkable and might even be a good topic for a future podcast. A couple more examples and then we'll move on from there. There are many major figures in early Christian socialist movement to note. Fernand LaSalle, an early admirer of Marx, who later broke with him and founded the first successful socialist political party in Germany in 1863. In England, early leaders like John Ludlow, F.D. Maurice, and Charles Kingsley stand out. Later, Stuart Headlam, the founder of Guild St. Matthew, and William Temple made notable contributions. The Christian Social Union, 1889 to 1919, followed by the Church Socialist League, 1906 to 1924. In Canada, Tommy Douglas, a Baptist minister who was the early leader of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, formed the first elected social democratic government in North America in Saskatchewan in 1944. In 1961, it merged with Canadian Labor Congress to form the NDP. How about that? So yeah, uh, I think I said all that needs to be said about that. Our listeners are the smartest. I want to thank uh, both Dan H. and Clayton B. for giving us some additional context and things to dig into as we go on our journey. Just remember that the particular journey that we are on is just talking about the what most people think is the biggest aspect of the classic theory of socialism and its transformation from immediately post-enlightenment through the modern era. So there we go. Uh, and with that, let's get into some general feedback. 99. Anders B. is uh, replying to our car conversation and said, I think Max drives a Honda Accord because that seems like something 99 would like. And 99 must drive a Ford Raptor. Just kidding. <laughs> Maybe like a Hyundai Sonata. And I'm sure Manny drives a 1984 Buick Grand National. Manny Faces would love to drive an 84 Buick Grand National. That would be so on brand for him. That would be pretty cool. Um, but wrong, wrong, and wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what about me seems like I like a Honda Accord. Yeah. Is that, I feel like it's not a car you have allegiance to. It's no. funny that the, Anders thinks that I drive it and that you would like that. Well, because I said, I want your car, but it's too much. Oh, right, yeah. right. Well, I, the, boy, I do Accord, have to bring my car lasts. back soon, so maybe I'll get one. Oh. Yeah. So you do like them. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what to get. Why are cars, why is everything so expensive? Everything is just out of control. It's probably, my lease is going to go, if I get even the same car, it's going to go up by $100. Mm -hmm. And I don't have enough money to put anything down, like a good, anything substantial. I don't know what to do. <laughs> when is it going to stop? I don't know. Is it still supply chain or they just hate us? <laughs> Did I tell you that our landlord's response to the air conditioning issue? No. The, land, the head office sent in... Yeah, trying to get that fixed, you know, supply chain issues and what have you. I'm like, hmm. Then the maintenance guy came the next day and he's like, the next day, he's like, hey, I ordered the part this morning for you guys. We should have it in pretty soon. Oh, okay. Just lying, just lying straight to our face and everybody's still using the supply chain issue. I mean, I have to imagine there's still some things that are backed up. Like, imagine. I don't know enough about that to be like, I'm it's sure there that. Are. So or there's not. So what? Why? Why? Why is my car more expensive now than it was three years ago? People do not. Companies do not like to go backwards on pricing once they've <laughs> established a new floor. I know, and um, that's where we are, and it's really sad. It's I'm. Really sad. I. I wish I could get rid of. I genuinely wish I could take the train here, but there's just no good line from my apartment. 
I mean, I'd be really sad without my car because I take a lot of like trips. How far are you walking uh, distance from a reasonable line? Well, I'd have to take the subway to there. You would first, because there's like there's a train that I could take. I don't know. I'd probably have to transfer. It'd be like it'd be too many steps because mm-hmm. I'm not in Manhattan proper. So, but I would. I looked into it. I mean, even if even if I kept my car and did that, it would be cheaper and like more, uh, you know, good, better for your, the environment. I'd pick your ass up at the train station. Aw. Right? Thanks. Will you pick me up in my apartment? <laughs> no. Okay. I'm truly just gonna, I'm gonna have to start uh, sleeping over here. I could make a little bed on the couch. We got the space. Yeah. The only thing we're missing is showers. I don't shower anyway. Oh, that's right, too. Yeah. Uh, we have a response, by the way, from Pastor Tim, and I'm really appreciative of this because he's continuing the dialogue. He's not shutting us out. And he's being a true unfucker in that spirit. And Pastor Tim says, holy shit. Ironic, eh? You know what? Your thoughtful responses to my comments truly mark you as head and shoulders above the vast sea of flotsam that is in the Potterverse. I appreciate the shout out. A couple of things, Max. Listen to 99. Mm -hmm. I once sold cars and leasing is really the only thing that maximizes your value in new cars. Max, you said you find most ceremonial aspects of church to be a little silly. Actually, you mentioned most things that are ritualistic. It's a fair point. Without context, most of them are. Watching a Marine Corps slow walk is weird if you just take out the casket because it robs you of the context of loyalty, friendship, and loss. Just so the smells and bells aspects of Christian worship are also hokey if they're done performatively because that's what we were taught to do in seminary. I fucking hate that. As much as it makes you chuckle, it grinds my gears because not one of those things is without some kind of meaning meant to be a positive thing for those present, whether that be kind of an invocation of peace, a plea for mercy, something woefully missing in our culture. Just waving your arms and saying the words makes me crazy. Nuts. James is off base in this whole. So remember, James weighed in uh, in support of Pastor Tim uh, and then criticizing us on a, a number of other issues, mostly our ignorance towards religion and in general. Uh, but James said, or but Pastor Tim said, I think James is off base in this whole censor yourself shit. I've lived on both coasts and went to seminary in the middle. And the pious, reserved, and emotionally stunted model of church leadership has done a better job of making themselves irrelevant than Christopher Hitchens could ever accomplish. Criticisms of the church are valid. We have, as institutions, lost our way in some measure. It happens to every organization that lasts for any length of time. Paul Tillich wrote that every institution is inherently demonic, pointing out that as soon as you forget why you got together in the first place and exist only to prolong your existence, you've already lost. For a secular example, see the labor movement that began to think of itself as a big business instead of a vehicle for the will of the rank and file. I'm going to come back to that in a second. 99. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight this piece that said 99's defined ignorance on some fairly common cultural memes gets a little old. But that's coming from me and I am a little old, so whatever. I'm not defiant, like, I'm not being, like, playing dumb. I don't know the Godfather, it's because I don't know the Godfather. I just wanted to clear the air on that one. Unless you mean cultural memes as in like the the true term of meme, like thoughts. And when I say I don't feel educated enough to speak, I just don't want to speak out of turn. I just wanted to call it one out. I promise the last thing you'll catch me doing on earth is playing dumb. (laughs) You'll catch me playing smart sooner than I'm playing (laughs) dumb. Uh, last thing, if you want to discuss the failings of the church and efforts by some of us to make them better, drop me a line. Pastor Tim, appreciate the thoughtful response as always. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the ethos here, right? Is to have these critical conversations. Everybody's welcome to call us out when they think that we're a little askew from the point. Um, but all of everything that you said here really, uh, really hits home. And I'm very grateful for the context. I could fuck with Pastor Tim's service. I feel like we would enjoy it. Oh, probably. Probably. Won't even give him a definitely. I, <laughs> That's how reticent you are. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. There's not many services that I enjoy. And and when I do go to service, it is to see a friend of mine sermonize. And um, and I enjoy that immensely. Yeah. See, well, you're biased because he's your friend. Mm-hmm. But Pastor yeah. Tim's now your friend. So. Yeah. Well, he is now. Double bias. Um. Speaking of the labor movement, it's uh, that really struck a chord, you know, because I'm deep into the the socialist series. And um, I got to tell you, I'm halfway through this amazing book called The Bending Cross. It's the uh, A biography of Eugene Debs. 
And it's just awesome. And watching the struggle that Debs had to get the get a labor movement off the ground in his industry, in, in the rail industry, was absolutely fascinating. And then watching how greed would infiltrate certain corners of, of even that movement and, uh, you know, and then rob them of, of momentum. It's, it's, it's really fascinating how no ma- it seems that no matter what type of institution you build, that exactly the, the quote that Pastor Tim, Tim gives here, that the minute it becomes about keeping that going and prolonging it is the minute that you, uh, that you kind of lose your way. Really great stuff, but I'm enjoying that because the intersection of the labor movement and then the burgeoning social movement in the United States to me gives a lot of credence to what Marx was saying about how it had to be an uprising of the working class and organized labor because of the process of capitalism. Like that's the that's the the order of things that it had to go through. And it's so it's what's really fascinating about the U.S. example is how the institutions of power saw this, the, the growth and the movement on the ground of figures like Debs and watching the labor movement coalesce with socialist theory and how they they really were fearful that they were going to lose the the capitalist institutions that we had here. And they had to they all gathered to really snuff it out and crush it. Really fascinating stuff. So at any rate. Now let's move on to our oh our good friend Alex S. Yeah, so Alex said ninety nine. I know you've been getting some flack of late. Everyone needs to back the fuck off. Thank you, but you did say something that made me cringe a bit, <laughs> and it was something to the effect of feature local wildlife. Please don't. There is no good reason to habituate habituate on wait habituate oh, any urban. I, I kept reading it as under. <laughs> there is no good reason to habituate any urban wildlife by conditioning them to visit food sources where there naturally are none, even in an urban environment. There are lots of reasons why this is bad, including a list that, uh, here's one from the USDA site. Human food is not healthy for wild animals. They don't need food from uh, humans to survive. They have a specialized diet and they can become malnourished or die of fed the wrong foods. And they can't distinguish from food wrappers and can get sick eating these items. Um, that's totally fair. I guess I meant like, you know, feature like have a bird feeder, not like don't like feed foxes or like raccoons. Like I did feed the turkey in the parking lot almonds because I was worried about him, but I checked. I would never, ever encourage anyone to feed like, like don't feed bread that I know because it gets, you know, like it absorbs in their body and it's bad for them, for most birds. So yes, don't, but like have a bird feeder. I feel like that's okay. But if it's not, Alex will tell me, I guess. We had a pug whom you know I hated that used to eat socks. Well, I mean, yeah, dogs eat all type of shit. Like, my roommate's dog, Henry the dog, tries to eat bones off the street. Little fucking garbage monster. <laughs> I'm like, please stop eating bones. Dogs yeah. eat tampon. They'll eat anything. Yeah, but also... Well, not all dogs. Don't, Hashtag. Don't feed those wild pugs. My... I saw a friend this weekend and they have a pug. <laughs> no. She's two. She is. No. I've never... Oh, I, I said to her I'd never met a pug, and I can't believe I forgot. I literally forgot. You know what? Your pug. You met the worst pug of all time. They, I met both of them. They weren't dogs. They were rocks. Like, they were shaped like rocks, not dogs. So this was like a true pug. Like, looked like the one from Men in Black. There's a place in, I don't know if it's still there. I assume it is. Um, but my wife is a huge pug person. And um, when we lived in Manhattan, there's a place called Pug Hill. And uh, she used to take her, she had a pug that was even fatter than the pugs that we had out here. I'm through the pug phase. She's through the pug phase, thankfully, because we had one that lasted for so long. Oh, gosh, Come on. Me a picture. I know they, they can be cute. They're just a useless breed. She only has one eye. They're, of course. She was rescued from a hoarder situation. Her name's Pearl. Mm. She was so I had cute. such a bad experience with these pugs. So the pug that, that we had, the first one that we had when, when we moved out of New York City was was my nemesis. Is is he one of the two I met or you had another Yeah, pug? no, no, no. He oh. was yeah, because he lived forever. Well, I didn't like know. way, way past their expiration date. And he smelled like it too. There's so many stories about that. I did tell pug. them about him dying. <laughs> And your wife just finding him. <laughs> oh, I found him, and I, but I had to go. I oh, had to okay. Leave the house. Because okay. We were, we were running to the airport. That's what I, th- I thought you. I. That's that why I remembered it. it. But then we were talking about it, and you told me 
how she disposed of him. Yeah. I got confused in my head. Yeah, it was a ridiculous day. I mean, what do you do? They were asking the question, what do you do? Like, if you find if you find your dog dead, like, where do you take if you don't bury it in your yard, what do you do with it? You mm -hmm. know, I yeah. just assumed if you call the vet, they'll come take it. Yeah. Probably for a fee because money. Yeah, it was a Sunday. I was getting on a flight. It was three o'clock in the morning. You were I found going him. to church, a flight to church. A flight to church. To That's Pastor right. Tim's. Yep. And um, so the only thing <laughs> I don't even want to get to is sound like we're terrible people. No, but. you just had to put him somewhere to uh, move he, him. Yeah. She found a, a, a large FedEx box. And FedExed him. And had to shove him in it and then uh, delivered him to the vet later and had I, him cremated. I think it's okay. Yeah. And it's only because the ground was frozen and I couldn't get I couldn't get him into the ground when I got back. Also, I wasn't going to be back. I should have pre-dug the hole. And that's what I was kicking myself for. Mm. Anyway. Why are we talking about pugs? I because you met a you met a pug and you still but you brought up uh, believe that it's a breed that should exist. But you brought up I didn't bring up dogs. animals, uh, uh, sock eating animals. Oh, you yeah, brought it up. Don't feed okay. pugs in the wild. Yes. <laughs> don't feed but pugs. But feed period. pugs. Feed Ugh. them if you have them, please. I have a real dog. You have you two real dogs. Doofus. That other one's not even a real dog. He they is a real dog. Home. He's like a squirrel. I saw another dog online that looked exactly like him. It was they was were it twins. a squirrel? He doesn't look like a squirrel. He looks like if you were casting like a live production of Annie, you would cast Miss Sandy. Yes. You know, like yes. he's like a little scruffy blonde. And he's kind of crazy and he looks like a gremlin and he has enormous paws for his little body. Do you know what uh, my little one did the other day? What? She, we were having spaghetti for dinner and she took out a long piece of spaghetti and <laughs> put it between the two dogs and they literally did oh the lady God. and the tramp thing. Because they're a boyfriend and girlfriend. They love each other. Not to sexualize dogs, but they I really do other. think like they're a married couple. Yes, they absolutely love each other. They'll sleep and they sleep in the same fucking crate. I know. That's not, why I can't get rid of this. Not because one. they my have dog, to. My real dog is in love with them. Like you couldn't like if you got him another crate, he wouldn't want to. Like nope. he wants to be in there. Nope. Yep. It's absolutely. so cute. They're inseparable. It's so cute. Kills me. Swedish John said, my ex's family is from this rural area of Finland. One dentist. Basically, everyone there has dentures. That's my ideal world. <laughs> if you're over the age of 75, observe that's today, 25 years ago, that number would have been about 50, smiley face. Seriously, the guy just pulled out everyone's teeth at the first sign of decay. My ex's dad had dentures from 45 years old on. Finland, 99? I'm coming. <laughs> but it seems like he's no longer practicing, so I, I don't know if not. they're going to take my all my teeth out oh like I want. Oh my God. That's great stuff. Thank you, Swedish John. I really, I'm, I think I'm onto something. I really do. Just pulling all your teeth out. And putting them into dentures. And that way they're not going to, it's, they're going to be, well, actually, okay. Here's a question. Will the teeth rot not connected to the body? Like I I'm know, saying. Take your uh, baby teeth out and, and let us Oh, know. that's true. They're not rotted. You're right. They're yeah. just teeth. They're little. Yeah. Okay. So no, it'll be fine. Because I was going to say if they rot, then like you wouldn't want that. But yeah, I'm not saying make artificial teeth, but it just makes so much sense. Did you ever meet the guy that we uh, represented that made artificial teeth? No. No, that was, that was before you. What the fuck is that? Mm. He made like crowns? Yeah. I mean, when you say made artificial teeth, it sounded scary. Yeah. But then when I thought about it, I'm like, yeah. that's actually crowns. fairly normal. It's like a manufacturer of crowns and stuff. Yeah. My friend has like, what are those called? Flippers? Like he has like, like just two teeth missing. Mm. And one time at a bar, they fell out of his mouth and a man picked them up and put them in his mouth. I saw it happen. <laughs> so he just had to not wear his two teeth for the rest of the night. Yeah, it was disgusting. It was like a friend of a friend of a friend. Mm. So it wasn't at least a complete stranger, but he he was as good as a complete stranger. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, on to this person who had their name as hot for my age. Don't know how old mm. you are, but I believe it. Please, 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 would you do a series on basic American civics, including the fact that it hasn't been taught since desegregation and what we don't know today as a result? I'm so curious as to what I should I would. You know what? I'm going to go back and look at a civics curriculum. I'm so curious I don't what that even looks think like. I took civics. I don't think I took civics either. Oh, well, yeah, you were you were uh, not born. No. Yeah. You weren't born during desegregation, I think. <laughs> I just don't know what that 
Well, he's saying it wasn't taught since then. I don't know if that's true. I know, but let's say right? a rough time period. But any civics, I, I wonder what that curriculum looked like. If anybody took civics, uh, reach out to us and let us know. Send us the syllabus. Yeah, would love to know what that what that was. I'm sure we can look online. I, I think colleges, like mm -hmm. if we Googled like college syllabus, college civics syllabus, sure teachers' websites would come up. Or high school. You want to look at right. high school? Yeah, because I think that's what they're talking about. Is like in the public schools, civics used to be taught at a. Is it that's that's usually a critique of every older person. It's like they, you know, oh, you don't know basic civics. I don't even know if I would be able to identify what civics is. Me, I yeah, I don't. It, it, it's not, like people sorry, say, Pastor oh, Tim, oh, but do, I don't know. <laughs> you should do financial literacy and home economics and all that kind of stuff. And I I don't disagree with that. We, I think I shop, it. home ec, those type of things are. I, I wonder when they were phased out, why they were phased out. So I was in... I would lump civics into that. Middle school, I'm trying to think of a rough, less less than 20 years ago, obviously. Mm -hmm. Maybe 15, I don't know. And I did, I did home ec where we did like pillows and we cooked. And then we did shop. We did like we had a... One year was like wood, like actual wood shop. And then the next year was like technology. And we actually did stuff on like CAD. It was actually, I think it was pretty advanced for the time. It sounds like it. And I mean, also, I grew up in a privileged area with a good school district. So, you know, take my experience with a grain of salt compared to a lot of other people in the country. And then eighth grade, we did like career aptitude tests. Mm -hmm. But then that was it. It was yeah. only middle school, no high school. Yeah. I mean, it has to be somewhat recent. Wasn't that that great scene with Jonah Hill in... Um Oh, in Superbad? In Superbad? Yeah, that came out in, in 2007, right? I believe. Yeah. I just wonder, and, and maybe I'm wrong for, for lumping them all together, but I feel like a lot of those fundamental pieces have evaporated from core curriculum. And I wonder if that's... I, be, I bet you my middle school still has home ec. Yeah? You know, I think the problem is with the way our, at least in New York State, I mean, I, I can't really speak to like post-common core because I, I mm -hmm. left before it, but... We have gen eds, just like in college. So it's it's not, I mean, in college, you do get a little more specific, but like in in seventh and eighth grade, it's just science. It's not right. specific science. Right. Like you can, you know, seventh grade, I think I learned biology, I think, like baby biology. And then eighth grade was earth science. Uh, no, that might be, I actually don't think that's true. But yeah, so it's like there are distilled versions, but we are teaching general education and then you get to high school, at least where I went, it was a little more specific, but there was definitely no AP for civics. So I don't even think it was offered because right. you had like AP World, AP Euro. Uh, but again, when I think of civics, I think of like, you know, who's your congressperson? What What is an election? What does your local state representative look like? What is your... We would have learned let's that. Let's look in, at the Constitution. Let's look at, you know, basic... Yeah. What's the Bill of Rights mean? Stuff that like would have been like eighth grade for me and... Then again, in 11th grade, I think you take U.S. history. And mm. then senior year, we I was in a weird pro program and they taught us like how to, it was uh, a, like a, not a lazy kid program, but um, it was kind of like a jerk off program. It was fun. Like we just kind was of. That, was that what it was called? Yeah. We jerk learned, off one-on-one? Yeah. They taught us to jerk off. Cool. Um and um, <laughs> so it wasn't, we didn't really learn anything. So maybe there would have been some of that stuff taught then. Yeah, maybe, yeah. But uh, we taught, I mean, we learned how to write a check. I remember that yeah. one, yeah, one day. I remember that. That was it. Mm -hmm. And I, I honestly, how, we read. I still remember like asking about why do you draw the line there? It's just like, <laughs> so they don't fill in more yeah. money. I'm like, oh my God, that I know. would be terrible. And then um, how to write, we registered to vote in class. I remember that. So there's probably some of that done when you're like becoming an adult. Um, yeah. Probably the leftover, the vestiges of whatever civics was. But right. no, they never talked about who our, our representatives were or what that even meant. I mean, I asked you the other day, do I vote? Should I vote in the school board election? I don't know. Who do I vote for? Do they run on parties? No one, you know, right. do you just like, maybe if you have kids, you know, A, you're more invested and you learn these things. But like, when do I, what if I never have kids? If I live in a neighborhood, I should still, like, understand what's going on. Of course. The only so, people that vote in school board elections are people that have kids there and then older run. people that don't have kids mm. and are like, why am I paying for this school? I just want to help. I mean, I figured if it was like I try to vote in all my local elections to help, like, yeah. the cause. Yeah. So I didn't know if it extended even that far. But 
I don't know. I usually don't vote in the school board elections, but I will um, if there's a special election for budget. And okay. I'll always vote for the budget to get more money into the district. Nice. We live in a not a well-funded district. Hmm. But your school yeah. doesn't even apply to that, does it? No. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> Bougie. Oh, it's still me now? Still Sorry, you. I got distracted. Why did you give me such a huge block of text to read? My little female brain can't handle it. Hmm. See, I'm playing dumb. Um, Knudsen said, uh, this is about socialism. So this was episode 99. It could have been an episode about a vegan dog. He's just in bed and then he got up and started barking. Shh. What? What? We should have done that, like an April Fool's. Yes. Socialism. I call it socialism, but it's just Henry barking <laughs> for six hours. But Knudsen's true point is socialism is like fuck. <laughs> fuck is one of the most diverse words in the English language. Its meaning is dependent upon context of the sentence, the perspective of the speaker, the perspective of the audience members, and all combinations and permutations of any combination of these. Fair point. Mm. Fair point. I like that. And Dan? Poetic. Dan G said, see, the, this. What, did I say this off mic or to you that people are just, people are yelling at me. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, off we're we're uh, switching places. <laughs> Dan G said, I'm going to say it. 99 was too combative today with respect to defining or speaking about whatever the proper terminology should be for communities. As much as she ha absolutely hates mansplaining when it's done, of which I absolutely agree with, the same could be said about Zoom-splaining in a tone that can easily come off as condescending. Not trying to come off as some Gen Z curmudgeon, oh, Gen X curmudgeon, um, but it was a little cringe. All I'm saying is please know the pronoun habit takes time because you get more flies with honey than vinegar. Um... I'm not a Gen Zer. I don't remember. I think it might have been when we were, we were talking about, about menstruation and you said women and I said, oh. no, there are people who aren't women. Right. Um, I agree with you, Dan. I might have been, you know, sometimes I, we, I'm not, people forget that me and Max like know each other and we can fuck with each other, but it probably doesn't always translate that well. I think my mom said something to me about when I, when I corrected a word you used, she was like, just feels like you're picking on him. And I was like, all right. I mean, I probably was. We prefer educating. Yeah, but I understand that's that's totally fair. I can maybe even be more. Sometimes I can be, I say things like what if, if I'm, I don't know. I can't explain it. Like I'll, I'll do it to my I roommate. I get frustrated when I continue to make the same, like when, when it seeks in, when mm -hmm. it seeps in and then we don't tackle something for a while and mm. then I revert. And that happens with, you know, a lot of the things that, that we cover is like it, we've covered so much in just three years that I'll go back and I'll be like, God damn, I had this. And I got to go back and revisit the concept and keep training the brain. And it just, I think it just does show you that like it, the, the old habits do die hard and it's very difficult to overcome like these, these sort of like linguistic crutches that we have it, just because as we were we literally taught that this is the way it is. And now there's an evolution. There's a new normal. So I, roll my eyes and and we have banter about it but i do appreciate it because i think that my language has elevated over the last couple of years without a doubt yeah uh, but there's always there's always going to be traps because if you don't practice it then it doesn't it, it just doesn't get in there there's yeah. just no other way about it and i you know like i said i might maybe it comes off more dismissively than i intend because i i, I was what i was trying to say was like i do that sometimes by accident even if i'm talking to my friend i'll, I'll just say something and it'll sound like us like snotty and I'm like, I did not mean, like, my brain sometimes says things. Even if I didn't mean it snotty, I'll be like, can you do this? And then I'm like, I meant to just ask you. <laughs> so if that happens, I apologize uh, for any future. And I, I, you know, we all have things to work on. And also, um, sometimes it's hard, uh, Dan, because, you know, I want to make sure, because the one time I don't bring it up that, you know, that non-binary or that trans listener might be like, Right. she didn't advocate for me or they didn't advocate for me or they don't see me. And I want to make sure that in those instances, especially when, you know, if it was like, like I, uh, once in a while, if I'm trying, if I try to keep pronouns general, because I don't, some people give their pronouns, which is great. And some people don't. So I, I usually try to say mm -hmm. they just, just to be broad. Sometimes I just assume and I, you know, I, that'll slip occasionally and it, it might get left in, but like something like, oh, you know, women are the only ones who menstruate, that's like actually a pretty big concept that it's something that to me I deemed worthwhile to like to talk about because someone in the audience might also not have thought about it that way. 
So, you know, when it's something smaller, I know it can seem pedantic, but there Did are- Did you follow the whole fracture on the left with the birthing person? Uh, it was like a maybe six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. Oh, I, that, that's been happening for, I mean, maybe there was something new. I, there's most among left-wing commentators. Like, so there was a big blow up between Anna Kasparian and Emma Bigland and um, the- At Humanist each other? Yeah, yeah. There was drama that I missed. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Um, who who was on what side? If you don't mind saying, uh, Anna Kasparian came out seemingly from left field. I don't, and there had to be some sort of like precipitating event. Okay, but she came out very strongly in favor of ridding the term "birthing person" because uh, she felt like it was stealing, you know, sort of like the turf argument. But you know, just for specifically for birthing, she thought that it was stealing agency from women. And Emma Vigeland came out with a like a really lovely response to it because they're friends. And she, I mean, she grew wow. up on the TYT network. Okay. And um, and then, God, I can't remember the kid's name from Fig Figueroa or something like that from the Humanist Report. He's a young guy, but he's, um, I think he is, I think he's gay. <laughs> I hope he is. Since you said it. No, he. I, I don't know what he identifies. Okay. I don't know specifically he's, how he's he, in the queer community. He, he is in the queer community, but um, sorry, and he came. So he point. came at it from another angle, and then there, uh, and then the there's a group of them that get together, uh, and it's a number of left wing commentators, and then they all started talking. I want to go. And it was just like, poof, it just it just really came up to the surface, um, and Anna Kasparian came back really hard at everybody, and it Interesting. was. Yeah. Um, Sometimes they're the, one of those things that like you, people get, you know, you have that thing that feels personal to you. Right. And it's just like you can't you can't see the forest for the trees with it. Yeah. With that, when when people and usually it's not people on the left who have a problem with that term, it's like no one is telling you you can't say you're a woman who gave birth or that you're a pregnant mother or that like like when you said when you said in your house, the people who menstruate, I said you have women who live in your house, women who menstruate when you're talking about right. your group. And it's something we ran into when we were doing the um, the LGBT, LGBTQ like starter episode mm -hmm. of not using LGBTQ catch-alls when it's just talking about like the trans community. Right. Or if we're just talking about the black community, you don't have to say POC because it's not general. So it's like no one is taking your your spe your specificity away from you. Like you can be a, a pregnant woman. You can be a mom. You can be all of those things. It's just that when we don't know who we're talking to or about, why not be general so everybody who fits that is included? So that's usually where that's where I land, and I I I'm pretty confident it's correct. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. not something that I would call an opinion. I think it's I would call that pretty factual. Like it is the nicest thing to do to be general and include people. So, and I'm not trying to you know turn this into like uh, you know well from my perspective, the challenge that I run into though mm -hmm. is as a cisgender white male talking about these things and, and around these things and trying to converse about them, it's sometimes difficult for me knowing that like the Latin X example that mm -hmm. that we talked about, how there's a lot of members of the Hispanic community that absolutely do not like the, the Latin X. And, and so it's their discussion to have. So what are we supposed to say? So knowing that there's still a fracture, even among leftists, and even among leftist women about term birthing person versus, you know, mom, it's like, I don't know where to land. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think I mean, it's not settled science I or would, settled language. No, I would say, like, if you're a woman and you do not like the term birthing person, you don't have to be called that. But if it's like a let's say a law or something and it says birthing person in it it's still not taking your agency away and it's not offensive like if you take personal offense to that that's kind of a you problem because there is nothing offensive you are a person who's birthing someone like it's not like like latinx was a more cultural and historical conversation mm -hmm. and sure do you want to take you want to you want to make that argument with birthing person and say well we've been called pregnant women for so long and it's like well now we live in a society where not only women can be pregnant people who don't identify as any as or as non-binary non or genderqueer or gender fluid or a trans person who can still give birth like 
we the the parameters have changed. Mm-hmm. So it's like on one hand where you're where you're sort of wiping away let's say what you know the Latino community felt was like this is our culture this is our we have yes our language hierarchy our language structure is gendered but that's our language like right. you can't just tell us it's wrong now right. because right. you put us into this box but saying that birthing people is wrong is like is telling all the people who were, aren't women that they're wrong can I ask you a really stupid question or I'm sure it's, it's not, not stupid, stupid. Um, so I understand the the difference there with um, a pregnant woman versus uh, you know a pregnant person or you know pregnant person's also fine so that's what I'm saying like is a mom is it okay to call is it okay to call who a mom a so let's say like a, a non a non-binary, non-binary person that is pregnant to say oh you're a mom it's I, I can't tell you that because there might be if, if someone is firmly non-binary it is like I want to firmly make I don't know. It's that was a weird word to use. If someone's non-binary and they're not like, oh, I go by, you know, he, they, or she, they, or like I'm, you know, I'm fluid. If they're just like, I am, uh, I'm they, them, like those are my pronouns. I don't identify with either of the binary. I would hazard a guess that they probably don't want to be called a mom. So a lot of times families will come up with their own names or, you know, it's like in, in, um, in gay couples, like sometimes it'll be like, dad and pops like they have their Mm. name for each of the dad because you know we have different names for mom and dad in the you know typical quote-unquote you know 1950s structure you have a mom and a dad so just like we're changing things so i would say no it's not okay to call that person a mom especially when you don't know them um you know i would just use the word parent like we i think we make it so convoluted. We already have generic terms. We have parent and caregiver that we, you know, we had to make the change from like parent-teacher conference nights to like those types of things. We're being like, some people are raised by foster parents or, you know, and they don't call them mom and dad and or mom and mom or whoever the foster. I mean, some people are raised by grandparents or aunts or siblings. So it's like, we've already made these, the, the nuclear family is gone because right. we have a more accepting world for a good reason. So we've already made so much progress that people, we've gotten to this point where it feels like there are too many options, but really we're just saying, you know, just be general, just say you're a parent, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, sure, you're pregnant. You, you, that's, you is not offensive because it's, it's who you are. Not saying she's pregnant, he's pregnant, they're pregnant. You're pregnant or you're giving birth or you gave birth or you have a child. Like there's so many ways in in the English language that we already do these things. It's like, it's when people butt up against pronouns and they're saying, I'm not calling anyone a they, them because they have a name. And it's like, see, you already use they in common nomenclature. Like they is part of our our English language. So, you know, they went to their car. You know, sure, you could say Max went to his car, but like no one's talking like that in shorthand when we're just, you know, chatting. So mm-hmm. we already have it there. So that's why when you, when you when you or anybody who might struggle with this, like feels overwhelmed by it, if you just kind of take a step back and say, all right, we have there's it's just like I don't want to erase the word mom. You're I don't not erase the moms word mother, you know, who moms identify, and- a, a, you know, like you're it's not erasing, it's adding. Right. It's additive. You are just making room for people who don't identify with mom to be parents and caregivers and whatever they're, you know, they might have their own word or maybe one day we'll have no a new word. teacher conferences? Is that what you said? In terms of the phrasing. What do they call them? I don't know, but I'm saying like we had to start, you know, like parent or guardian. Like, you know how when permission slips, they started changing it to parent mm. or guardian. Mm. That's kind of what I was alluding it, to of it, like, they might still call it that, but they probably shouldn't because... You know, some kids don't have parents like they just have, you know, they might have grandparents or like I said, raised by their siblings. We don't know. So it's just when if we wouldn't want to exclude a child from something, why, you know, that child will be an adult one day. Let's not exclude them either. So it's pretty easy to just say parent or guardian. So just don't say pregnant woman, just say pregnant person. Like if you and if you have a problem with that, I really, you know, it's like I don't think anybody has a problem with no, it. I they, think it's just they like do. No, <laughs> I mean in, in our community. No, no, I'm know, saying in the I'm the I'm saying of, in the this world. Comment, just you but know, also, somebody saying like show grace on both sides, oh, yeah. you know. But there might be people, we might have listeners because, you know, everyone has their kind of hang up. Mm-hmm. So some people's hang up could be language and could be 
you know, there are people who are like, even young people, young people, older people, it doesn't matter what age, who are like, you know, I'm not calling anybody. It's not proper English. I'm not calling you they. And like I said, it, we already do in so many ways. So I don't know. I think no one is forcing you to be anything you're not. If you are a man, you can still be a man. If you're a woman, you can still be a woman. And if you're not, you can still be non-binary, genderqueer, gender fluid. Like no one wants to push their ideology on you. So you have to adopt it in your own life. That's what people miss here, I think. It's like no one is taking your autonomy away. Just be more inclusive of other people. But in your lives, say, yeah, I'm a pregnant woman. I'm a I'm a mom. I gave birth. Like, that's fine. Do it. Right. So I don't know. I know that was a big tangent, but I oh, think it's helpful. important. It is. It's helpful. All right. Uh, continuing on to Instagram, then a couple of YouTubes that we'll, uh, we'll get through quickly here. Mike on Instagram said, hey, y'all, love the pod. I've been listening to the socialism episodes. And as a communist, I have a few critiques. However, I don't necessarily feel qualified to make judgments at this point. I would like to make a suggestion, and that is maybe reaching out to Brett O'Shea from Revolutionary Left Radio. That's interesting. And his co-host, Allison Escalante from Red Menace, if Max is interested in putting a very fine-tooth comb on the subject. I would love to, I think we've alluded to the fact that we're going to try to experiment with more uh, interviews and phone of friends as we, uh, as we kind of get our, continue to get our footing this year. I have revolutionary left radio in my notes somewhere. So yeah, I, got, I think in that sheet we made is once, that it? it sounds familiar yeah. now that you say it. I, I want to say that maybe we even reached out to them. I can at, check for, as a, as a phone, a friend, maybe. Right. I'll check. It yeah. doesn't, that doesn't sound like, um, you know, it's not reaching my brain, but yeah. it might've been in discussion too. Yeah. But appreciate that, Mike. Thank you for the suggestion. Uh, and then over to YouTube, at the Duck of Doom said, I think you might be a little mixed up on a point. Your Germany example is the epitome of states' rights. And this ruling recognizes those rights of sovereign Indian states. Not all states are signatories to the U.S. Federation, and no state in that federation has the right to directly interfere with the rights of any other state in or out of the Union. Interactions between any state in the federation and uh, any state not a party to the federation are under federal jurisdiction, i.e. trade and treaties. Um, Duck of Doom, it sounds like you are really schooled on this and coming up with something very specific to states' rights and signatories to the U.S. Federation. And I totally get that, but I'm missing the link with the Germany example because I was the reason I brought up Germany wasn't to make the states' rights argument, it was actually to talk about um, foreign affairs. So basically, like the right to. And I'm trying to think. So this wasn't the equal protection argument. It wasn't even the state's rights argument, which was dismissed on standing. Uh, this was just to uh, to put in people's minds that these are independent of foreign nations. Yes, they are through treaties, a party to certain aspects of what the U.S. can do for them, what the U.S. government can do through them. Again, through treaties. And these things are abrogated all the time, sadly. Um, but my... Again, I'm, I'm confused as to which point you're making. So if if you happen to catch this, if you could respond to us and just let us know in a little more detail where you're going with it. I'm not sure where where I got that, uh, where I might have gotten that wrong. So um, if you can clarify, that'd be great. And then uh, at Specker Gronk, who is, is that Specker changing their handle? <laughs> Maybe. Or we have two Speckers. I'm wondering how you're going to go four episodes deep before talking about Eugene Debs, but I'm already on the hook. Edit. Can't wait to hear your take on Cornell's jump to the Green Party. Um, I think Debs, yeah, we're it's going to be episode four before we get to Debs. But um, like I mentioned earlier, I'm halfway through The Bending Cross, and uh, it's just an exceptional work. It's an old book written in a very old biographical style, which means that there, I don't think there's a, 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 a detail of his known life that isn't in this book. I mean, it's extraordinary that way, the way uh, old old timey biographies used to be. But it certainly puts you in the moment and, and it really lets you know who Eugene Debs, the person was. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to that, too, actually. And as far as Cornell West going over to the Green Party, you know how I feel about third party efforts. Again, I wish it was on the Democratic Party as Bernie had done it to surface issues 
that would have done two things. One is get a wider audience, but also brought the Democratic Party establishment further to to the left because he would have had to appear on the debate stage with Joe Biden. He would have to appear. He would have put up a better front than Williamson and RFK. RFK, who is just, I think, aligning himself more with the far right at this point than he is even with uh, making any inroads on the left. That's just a guess. Um, but I would have loved to see Cornell West on a larger stage because I think he would have been able to truly embarrass the establishment through his rhetoric and his ideas and his knowledge. And um, the, I don't have a lot of hope in, in third parties, but if he was going to be a third party candidate, he's exactly where he should be. And I am, I am happy that he kind of had a change of heart about the People's Party, obviously, and um, that he's going to be able to be platformed in a, in a bigger way. I don't really think that it's going to, you know, that some of the concern that people have is, oh, if it is a popular enough movement with the Green Party that is going to be able to affect the outcome in the general election. I don't think that's going to be the case. I still think it's going to be a rather marginal attempt. There are people that are still angry with Jill Stein. There's certainly people that are still angry with Ralph Nader or Ross Perot, for that matter, and, uh, you know, people playing the spoiler. But I don't think it's going to be a significant enough campaign to do it. But at least it's going to platform his ideas in a much broader way. Uh, and for that, I'm grateful. Plus, he's not you know, putting any energy into uh, the People's Party, which is on many levels, as we said, very problematic. Uh, and that's all I got to say about that. And um, at, in real time, 99 has been culling uh, so that we can get to the end here. So um, let's get to coffee donations and we'll close it out. Sure. So Blaine F is now a member. And they said, you and FDR, IFF, keep up the good work. I don't know what IFF means. Sure. I, I saw some acronyms online. You'll have to tell me, unless it's supposed to be like... Tariff? UNF Tariff? Oh, that could be it. Yeah. Let us know, Blaine. Uh, Will Watkins... Hold for it. I am William Wallace. ...said, I have a lot of thoughts circulating in my head. Probably sending a long-ass email soonish. Want you to know I appreciate you a coffee for each of you. So Will bought us three coffees. <laughs> the best Will... The Ugandan also bought three coffees. Hey, hey. Max 99 and Manny Faces. Thanks once again for always delivering the best class content. And Spec bought five copy coffees. Copies. Copies of coffees. Copies of coffees. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for the support, everybody. 99, thank you for uh, the education. Unfuckers. And the Zoom explaining and the SAS. All of it. All of it. You get that's it. what you get in package 99 up. That's it. You got a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs> little bitch. Mm -hmm. Would that be your rap name? No. It's, little bitch. <laughs> um, I once joked to my friends that my rap name would be Young Israel and they still laugh about it. It was just a joke. So not to, I don't, I'm not trying to rile up the Israel v. Palestine people, but they thought it was really funny. I like it. So. I like it. Yeah. All right. This weekend, we'll catch you with uh, an update on Julian Assange. Uh, after that, the Socialism Part 3 episode is not going to run on the normal Saturday drop because I'm going to be traveling and on the road and won't be able to actually record it until I get back. So that will drop a few days after, but we're, we're in good shape to get that done. Uh, make sure to go over to YouTube. Give us some some additional subscribes and some likes. Buy some all books. That stuff. It's yeah. summertime. Head to the beach, head to the lake. You know, get a book from bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod. I, it's now, pod. now I can't remember. It's like, I think it's I think it's pod. pod. Okay. Yeah. Either way, you'll find us. Go to the website. Go to UNFTR.com. Yeah. I'm reading a book called Ice Cream Social. Oh, you have a book out there, by the way. Oh, yay. It's yeah. the Conspirituality book. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see it. But I'm reading a book about how Ben and Jerry's sold Unilever, but still kept their soul. Like their social mission. So it's actually been really good. Not actually, but it's been really good. So cool. I'll, I'll add it to the recommendations list. I love it. Yeah. All right. All right, I'm fuckers. Catch you next time. Bye.